This is Terms of Reference Podcast number 176. So those are areas where, again, this kind of getting donors to plan better with organizations on the ground so they meet people's needs, IRC driving toward a bigger scale with the same amount of resources or getting more resources to go to scale and meet people's needs, focusing on outcomes or results instead of activities and using the best available evidence instead of anecdote. Those are areas where IRC is innovating, but if we do it alone, we'll only make the difference in our own programs, which is is really insufficient. This is Terms of Reference. I'm your host, Stephen Laddick. The International Rescue Committee is a well-known force in humanitarian aid. As the organization has continued to evolve since 1933, they've literally written the book multiple times on how to best serve those in need. My guest for today's 176 Terms of Reference podcast is Jody Nelson, who is IRC's Senior Vice President for Policy and Practice. Jody has overall strategic and operational responsibility for IRC program technical units, including research and evaluation and global advocacy and strategic communications. And longtime listeners will also recognize Jody from way back in 2014 on show number 33. At that time, Jody was with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What I love about this conversation is its focus on how IRC is innovating through three specific lenses. First, how do we get enough of the right aid to the right people? Second, how do we shift from planning the help the social sector delivers in terms of activities to one of outcomes? And finally, how do we ensure programming is designed based on the best available evidence rather than inertia or anecdote? I spoke with Jody in New York. But before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. The Terms of Reference podcast is sponsored by International Solutions Group, helping to improve the social impact of governments, UN agencies, NGOs, and companies for more than 10 years. Visit ISG online at www.theisg.com. Hello, Jody. Thank you so much for being on the Terms of Reference podcast today. Hi, Stephen. How are you? You know, I actually, I could have used that moment so perfectly. Like, I should have said that thank you for coming back to the Terms of Reference podcast because you were actually on our 33rd episode when you worked for a different organization for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But now you're at a different organization or you've returned to a different organization. Exactly. You know, you are truly a woman of the world. I know that you are on an airplane an awful lot. Where do we find you sitting today? Today, I am at the headquarters of the International Rescue Committee here in New York City. Excellent. Welcome, and welcome actually home. just off a plane yesterday from Niger in the Sahel part of Africa. Wow. All right. Well, great. From the belly of the beast to, you know, back to the headquarters. Excellent. You are the senior vice president policy and practice at IRC. While it's a very well-known organization, you've been around forever. Can you just give us, you know, the two minutes on what is your focus, your mission? What does the IRC do? Absolutely, Stephen. It's a pleasure. So IRC was founded in the 1930s essentially as a resettlement agency in a time when people were trying to get out of Hitler's Europe. IRC sent planes and had a lot of private individuals dedicated to essentially rescuing people to leave Europe and resettle in America. And since then, we continue to operate. We still operate in that same way. So we operate overseas in contexts that are fragile, conflict-affected, or the home for big displaced populations, so where people flee. We also support them in their journey to new countries to find safety, 
or find asylum and resettle in third countries. So that means, so for example, in Niger, I saw populations that were fleeing Nigeria into Niger, fleeing the violence and terror of Boko Haram. And then they were settled, you know, temporarily, I guess you could say, in Niger. For those people lucky enough to get protection status and refugee status and with claims that meet the UN's criteria for resettling, they might be resettled in Europe or America. And then IRC is also on that side of the equation in both Europe and America, working with people who are fleeing those countries and helping them to either integrate or resettle in Western countries. As you know, all pieces of that journey are at risk today in the world. And so IRC also does a good amount of advocacy and very strategic communications to help people understand the plight that these people are facing and the policies that need to be either developed or adjusted to make sure that people are safe. So that notion of the arc of the crisis is one that is unique to IRC's mission. We also work across the different areas of people's lives. So we're not only a health organization, an education organization, an organization that seeks to help prevent violence and help people recover. We work across five major areas of work or outcomes that we want to achieve with people and see measurable change in their lives. And those include health, education, safety, or violence prevention and response, empowerment, and economic well-being. And then finally, I'll just say, and in particular because of your experience in monitoring and evaluation, and I know that from your background, IRC's strategy right now, and really for the last 10 to 15 years, has been to make sure that our programs are not only designed and implemented to achieve measurable difference in people's lives, but also based on the best available evidence or contributing to the best available evidence. So that aid continues to be increasingly effective at impacting people's lives. Mm. Uh, does that give you enough of a high level picture? Uh, it's so much to chew on and even, you know, as usual, it's Where do you start eating the elephant? That's what I want to know. So tell me how IRC is evolving. How are you helping, you know, literally sort of bend or stretch or completely break the way that you deliver assistance, you know, in this age of mobile technology, in this age of sort of everything instantaneous, in this age where, you know, people are craving these new solutions to these old problems? What are some of the ways that IRC is putting those new solutions on the table? Great. So, I mean, maybe I'll start by just making it clear what kind of needs IRC responds to, right? Because for sure, the world is evolving and continues to evolve. And there's so many different areas of opportunity and challenge that are out there. And so I think like if you were to look at a map of the world today, you know, you would see, in fact, I have in mind this great map that I've seen in a, in a report on family planning that we did, where you see all the hotspots in the world where there's conflict, where the governments are fragile, where people are on the move, fleeing those contexts into neighboring contexts that are also fragile and poor and where people are on the move. And, you know, you can summarize it by numbers. So there are more than 65 million people displaced in the world today. That's the most recent number from UNHCR this year. But you can also kind of touch it with your own reality and what you hear every morning on the news. You know, people are fleeing, people are poor, people are suffering the circumstances of bad government and weak international regimes and institutions. And so there's no doubt that our current model, and like you mentioned, the model since World War II, is not sufficient or adequate to meet the needs that you can imagine occur in the world because of those situations. 
But I think this notion of innovation is really important to unpack because in some ways there are real basics that don't happen and need to be fixed. And IRC often talks out loud about the system that's broken. And so I'll give you a few examples of how we ourselves want to you know, fix our own programs and practice, but also it's not enough. So we want the whole system to make similar changes. Yeah, and I really like that direction simply because we do talk about innovation so often as a shiny new object. Sometimes I think that the smartest move or that we've heard on the show several times is let's look at what we've got and let's make sure that we're doing it right. Okay, so I'll give you three examples and then we can build on that, okay? So again, so we're trying to kind of to look at how does the current system that's been set up, you know, in the 40s and 50s, how is it not meeting people's needs? And how is IRC, quote unquote, innovating to change the way we work and also hoping others and needing others to change in similar ways? So the first is really simply that there is not enough of the right aid going to the right people. So again, as I said in the introduction, I'm just off the plane from Niger. And we were out of Niamey, the capital, in an area called Difa, where there is an incredible amount of need. And it's tangible. I mean, you can really see when you're in communities. So let's say you go to, you know, we went to five different communities one day outside of Difa town. So outside where the locus of market activity is or where there are schools and hospitals, even if they're very basic. And there are Nigerian refugees and people from Niger living in communities where there's no health and no education, simply nothing. So that's just, you know, one very clear and obvious indicator that we're simply not getting enough aid to people who need it and enough of the right aid to people who need it. So as a result, IRC's strategy asks all of our country programs, so our 40-some country programs, to make sure that they are thinking about scale and thinking about reaching more people and having more impact across those areas. And then going back to the system that isn't quite right, you know, when you go to these countries and you talk to the bilateral donors or the multilateral agencies, the UN, the US government, the Brits, the Irish, everybody is operating with positive intent. Everybody wants to see those kids who don't have an education get health and education. But somehow the individual needs and politics of each agency mean that those kids don't get it. And so there is definitely innovation needed in that area of how do these organizations come together and jointly plan for using their resources to meet people's needs. And we should definitely keep talking about that as we go on today. I think maybe more specifically, two other areas that are characteristic of the system and then point to how IRC is innovating. When you look at a given humanitarian project, and look at its proposal and look at what the organization is asked to do and plans to do and how a donor asks to report on that, it's often the case that both the donor and the organization characterize the work in terms of activities. We're going to train people, we're going to distribute stuff, we're going to hold meetings, we're going to you know, bring people together to have certain important discussions. We're going to train teachers, train doctors, hold community meetings. Similar, you know, I hope I'm getting across this kind of, you know, how do, it's almost like how do you plan your day, right? Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. 
And what you don't see is an emphasis on outcomes. So instead of we're going to train teachers, you know, we're going to reach out to families and make sure they know about the schools in their area. We want to see, we the donor, we the organization, we want to see learning outcomes. We want to see kids learn how to read. We want to see kids learn how to do math. We want to see kids whose social and emotional abilities and functions are improving over time because these kids have been suffering from violence and witnessing all kinds of things. So that emphasis on outcomes is something that you tend to not see in humanitarian aid and something that IRC prioritizes in all its programs. Then finally, I'll give you an example, a similar example as the activities one, that when we talk as humanitarian actors, we often design programs or design investments based on convenience and anecdote. So we're going to continue to do this training because we've been doing it in other countries, because the donors ask us to do it, because we've done it for a long time, rather than we're going to do those interventions that are proven to work to achieve those measurable differences in people's lives. And so IRC has really prioritize this notion of working to achieve change in people's lives and using the best available evidence to make choices about what to do to do so. So those are areas where, again, this kind of getting donors to plan better with organizations on the ground so they meet people's needs, IRC driving toward a bigger scale with the same amount of resources or getting more resources to go to scale and meet people's needs, focusing on outcomes or results instead of activities, and using the best available evidence instead of anecdote. Those are areas where IRC is innovating, but if we do it alone, we'll only make the difference in our own programs, which is really insufficient. Mm. Thank you so much for putting so much meat on the table. I really appreciate it. Can we go backwards to forwards on the three points that you put on the table there? You know, when you're talking about designing programs of convenience, you know, or maybe I could characterize it as business as usual, right? I'm fortunate enough to just be back from Papua New Guinea myself, where the last decade, even maybe we could say two decades of work in that particular country as a particular example, you could say it's business as usual, you know, systems are built the same way, the education system, you know, hasn't seen any real change, the health system hasn't seen any real change. Are there maybe one or two specific examples of how you could tell us about where IRC has really said, you know, let's not deliver this program or this activity, let's, you know, the evidence has shown us in other places that what we really need to do is Y or Z. And so we're going to do that. And either that has made a change or you're seeing a change or you're waiting for the outcome now. Yeah, great. So I'm going to use two examples from one example from Niger, just because, you know, it's not so much about, I mean, I think it's more about doing things differently and not business as usual and not so much about doing things that are proven effective, but you'll see the example. So in Niger, and as you probably know, everywhere really, you know, the aid community has been criticized over time and even self-criticizes over time for doing water projects that, you know, digging wells and creating boreholes in communities that then provide quality water for a certain amount of time and then they break and they don't get fixed and the communities don't have the resources to fix them themselves and the organization is gone and the donor is no longer interested. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, there are, you know, anecdotes about context in which, you know, you walk around and you see a bunch of broken wells, for example. So let's say that's business as usual. In Niger, IRC, with support from ECHO, I'm pretty sure that's right. I hope that's right because it's on a podcast. So support from the European community has 
created a solar powered borehole in a community in Niger. And it's, I mean, I wish I could show you a picture. It's beautiful. A solar panel. So you see this huge solar panel and then you see the borehole on the ground and then you see a pretty large water tower and the yield from the system is quite large. But the coolest thing is that then the water is channeled into the surrounding villages and then comes out in these quite nice kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, and this isn't the right word, sinks throughout the villages. <laughs> okay. And so it's a sustainable, you know, impactful water system that was created with the same resources that other water projects have been done, but it's not at one site, right? So if you have in your head those pictures of people with their jerry cans going to get clean water, this is throughout the villages that are surrounding the borehole. Um, it's sustainable because it's solar powered. It doesn't require huge improvements over time. So it's, again, sustainable in the community. That to me is like, that's not business as usual. It's using new models going to larger scale than a well or a borehole, delivering clean water throughout a relatively large, you know, area of space and communities. The other examples, I mean, I have quite a few examples, I think, of IRC and the community overall not doing as business as usual. And you probably know about this as well, but I would say over the last couple of years, with increasing evidence that cash is a more effective tool to meet people's basic needs than distribution of non-food items, mm -hmm. or in some cases, distribution of food, cash has become increasingly common. So cash transfers in communities that are both poor, so developing country and development context, as well as poor fragile, affected by conflict and humanitarian disaster. That's a great example of moving from business as usual to doing something that is both proven effective and then that is not the common approach to helping people. So for IRC, I mean, we've gone pretty far in stating where we are and where we want to be. So we're committed to increase our cash distributions to be 25% of what we distribute. So not 25% of our overall budget, but 25% of distributions. Mm -hmm. um, and we're currently at around 16%. And so it's also innovative that we're even working in our back office to figure out how to measure because that's not, you know, a self-evident thing to be able to do. So that is another example. So again, just to repeat, I think we have a lot of innovative models throughout our country programs, and I'm sure other agencies do, doing things differently so they're more sustainable and they affect more people. And then there are several examples where there's been evidence that something works better than something else and where the community has adopted it, the community being the aid community. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, you know, cash transfers, if, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that was part of the grand bargain recently at the World Humanitarian Summit, wasn't it? It was. Right. And we've heard, we've been lucky enough to have several people on the show, you know, sort of definitely throw down about cash transfers just to kind of pick up on that thread as well, where if you're someone who's not savvy or familiar with how aid is distributed, especially in humanitarian context, it just seems like, hey, wait a second, you're giving cash to people, but it ends up becoming the most important resource because, you know, the people who are in need know their needs the best, right? Ultimately, it's a no-brainer that's taken us a while to figure out. I want to sort of switch gears and go to that second point that you made about 
I know that most of our audience is painfully familiar with the development of a program that you characterized, right? Hey, we're going to perform, you know, we're going to go train teachers or we're going to do capacity building in this way, or, you know, we're going to deliver these, you know, 500 non-food items or whatever. So it's this focus on activities that we can actually check off and, you know, then sort of report back to a donor or make tangible in some way. What does it mean to you to be able to focus on outcomes and what's the challenge there? especially when it comes to working with donors, you know, in sort of a, a hyper-structured system that we have where, you know, things are earmarked and or, or money is earmarked and you sort of have reporting periods and finite program schedules. What's your process or path for working on outcomes? I mean, there's several things that get in the way. So I'll start with what we can control, right? Because I don't think it's fair to say it's all about the donors or all about the resources or the lack of resources. You know, I think, I mean, one thing that gets in the way is just habit that, you know, when you are in an industry that does things a certain way, you continue to do things a certain way. And so that, you know, figuring out how to disrupt that is really important. But if you do think about that and think about the fact that most of our country programs are under tremendous pressure to deliver on grant deliverables, and that's simply the business we're in, right? For good or for bad, it's a heavily constrained funding environment where donors have their own needs and their own reporting needs back to Congress or back to Parliament or back to bilateral donors if they're multilateral. Picture all the different incentives and all the different results that people in their jobs and in their political context need to report out on. And that's probably the biggest constraint. You know, I could go on to say you know, the nature of the humanitarian funding itself is very problematic. Most of our grants by typical humanitarian donors are a year or less. And so if you imagine, you know, you have short-term grants with pretty clear and constraining requirements for reporting, you as a country program, you need to put together all of those investments and make sense of them. That's not the same as saying, I'm going to go into this community. In this community, I see that, you know, for example, women and girls are not safe and there is domestic violence in the home and violence against children in the home. And so the outcome I want to work toward is decreasing that violence. Mm -hmm. And I need the space and the time and the resources to figure out not only how best to do that, but what I know from best available research and the other contexts in which I work to be able to do that. That's a very different setup than reporting out on short-term milestones by many, many donors over a short period of time. So I think that the disincentives that are created by the context in which we work and the funding model are probably the biggest challenge that we face. You know, on the flip side, when donors come to the fore, and that can be government donors, DFID is a great example of a donor that seems to really understand the need for longer term money, more time for planning, things like that. So a public donor can come to the table with a longer term opportunity, multi-country and time to do good planning so that you do focus on outcomes and bring to bear the best available knowledge or a private donor who truly gets that. So IRC, as an example, IRC is in the final four for the MacArthur $100 million grant. And that's another opportunity where you really do get the space and time to figure out how best to deliver for people. And so there are lots of opportunities where we get the flexibility and the time 
and the kind of incentives to do a much better job planning for and delivering on outcomes for people. Is there anything that you've seen either in IRC programming or other places that you've worked where even in that constrained environment by sticking to a clear mission, a clear set of, for lack of a better term, activities, outputs, that there has been a way to say, hey, look, we know that if we're going to, if we deliver this much non-food items or we, if we deliver you know, this many boreholes that you know, this will ultimately then result in that higher outcome of more kids are going to school or, you know, women who have safe spaces or these kinds of things. Are there any examples that you have of that? Or is that still sort of a pie in the sky kind of hope? Yeah, I don't know that I would frame it like that. I think there are lots of examples. And it's, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is like every cholera outbreak, you Mm -hmm. know, that happens, like IRC and other organizations respond Mm -hmm. and prevent cholera from continuing to kill people. So, you know, there's obviously an example where the current system works. So not to say it's always the case that what we do doesn't add up. So just to make that clear. And then I'll give an example in education and kind of a really nice model that I think we try to replicate here at IRC, but is also worth thinking about. And so, you know, IRC for the last 10 years and probably more has developed a certain educational model that we call healing classrooms. And that's in reference to the fact that, you know, the kids that we support in many contexts don't just need access to schools and need to learn, but they're also in situations where violence and displacement has really affected them and affected their well-being and their social and emotional well-being. So we've been working over time to figure out how do we address those three needs, access, learning, and social and emotional learning. And the partnerships with the U.S. government, with BPRM, which is a typical humanitarian donor, and with many other, you know, kind of typical humanitarian donors has allowed us to do our program across many countries, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, etc., to then do impact evaluation to learn the effectiveness of our program. So I'm going to get the dates wrong, but I hope it communicates the point. You know, I think we delivered the first healing classrooms model in something like 2008. We did it with bilateral, so probably U.S. government money and did it in three or four countries. Then we did an impact evaluation in Congo in from 2011 to 2014 and learned what about the program worked and didn't work to achieve those outcomes. And then we partnered with Dubai Cares, a private foundation, to using that evidence and other science develop an improved model for delivering education and achieving those learning outcomes as well as social emotional learning. And that's in three countries now, and that's Niger and Lebanon and Sierra Leone. And so we continue to adapt the programmatic model within the constraints of our grants with public donors. We continue to do rigorous evaluation both at critical junctures, so 2011 to 2014, and then over time, what we're currently doing in the three countries I mentioned. And we continue to partner with both public and private donors and try to work with them to really make the point that you need to kind of invest in both program implementation and evaluation and learning in order to become increasingly impactful on these kids' lives. So that's all within the current humanitarian system. There's nothing particularly you know, not typical. It just requires the leadership, 
the kind of humility to know what works and doesn't work and admit it, and the competencies to tap into research and use research to generate the evidence we need to help people. Mm. So how is you know, your first point that you made there, how is that evidence that you've seen over the last six years speaking to making sure that you're able to scale, able to provide impact, and in your words, deliver enough of the right aid to the right people? How is that playing out into your programming today? Yeah. So, I mean, to run with the education example, you know, the MacArthur competition provides us an opportunity to scale lessons we have from the story I just told to the Middle East and to really make an important watershed change in the way that early childhood education is delivered, sorry, within humanitarian aid. So there's an example of the opportunity. We haven't nailed it yet, but we're in it to win it, as David Miliband (laughs) says, our CEO. But so if we should get it, it'll be a great story of scale, scaling based on evidence in other contexts, scaling in a new context, and hopefully continuing to do so in other contexts. But I think, you know, another important point to note is that You know, there is something in the system, our current system, the humanitarian system, that really prevents scale, right? So scale meaning working with governments and supporting governments because they're the ones in many contexts that can actually deliver for more people. Mm -hmm. And then also something about this, the way that we all work in our own project silos That makes it the case that when you go to a country like Niger, you can see great work, great projects like the solar power project I mentioned, or we have another kind of an e-voucher project. So that refers to, you know, it's cash transfers, but it's delivered through mobile technology that gives people the choice about what they want to buy. It's fantastic. But what you don't see is solutions that are affecting the largest number of people possible. And that, I think, is outside the scope of any one implementer, for sure, and really requires collaboration and leadership among the donors in a certain context and the implementers. So IRC is an implementer, as well as communication, leadership, coordination among the donors at their headquarters shops, D.C., London, et cetera, and their field offices. And that's an area where I think we all have a lot to do to make sure that the right aid is getting to the right people. Mm. Within IRC, is there a way that you fund this type of innovation? You know, some scale projects or new impact projects or, you know, looking at outcomes in in a different way. Do you set aside sort of some money or do you 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 look for specific grants to be able to to specifically say, hey, look, we want to figure out how we tweak, how we evolve, how we maybe can do things in a different way? You know, I wish I could say we have like this huge capital fund. No, I'm not saying it's huge. I'm just, but maybe there's... No, I mean, we're an NGO, right? So we have to raise the money from different sources in order to do this. We've had great success. You know, we, like the examples I just gave you, you know, the MacArthur example is a private donor. The Dubai Cares is a private foundation. We have several stories of private philanthropies and individual donors who have really given us the means to be able to do better work. And then I'll give you another example of just because you mentioned this kind of tweak and adjust and scale. IRC has also launched what we call our Airbell Center. And so that's specifically a, you know, a team dedicated to looking at problems that don't get solved through our traditional programs. And understanding the context, understanding the possibility 
to change people's behavior and use insights from research, from other sectors, from other kind of solutions that have worked in other sectors and tweak our programs or try new things to come up with breakthrough solutions that make a huge difference. And so Airbell is working on things like how do you really prevent violence, intimate partner violence in the communities in which we work? Because we have a, a basket of interventions and we have evidence about certain things that work better than others, but it's still not making enough of a dent on women and children's lives, for example. So we have a center, it's funded, it's a dedicated team, and it's funded by mostly private resources, but not only. So the Arnold Foundation, for example, gave us a sizable grant mm -hmm. to make sure that our Airbell Center had the new competencies and skills we need to really try new things and to find solutions that then we can advocate both within and outside IRC should be scaled to impact more people's lives. Is there a way that, I'm going to say it wrong, is it Airbell, Arbell? That, that one of the things that I'm always interested in in this particular kind of conversation is how we see these tests, these pilots, these attempts at, you know, as you just said, let's just take, you know, violence, intimate partner violence. When something is discovered and when, when evidence is produced, how is that then translated into sort of, hey, this is going to become a standard op, you know, within IRC programming going forward? Is that is that just a matter of leadership stepping up and saying, look, we figured it out and we did this? Or does it have to trickle out over time? Is there like, does it have to be a big push and change minds within IRC? Or is there kind of like, yep, you know, we figured it out and we're just going to adopt it now? It's a great question. It really depends. And so I don't want to equate. So there's several different things that you're asking about, right? Because so Airbell Center is one we have different kind of technical resources, for lack of a better word, here at IRC that support this kind of, you know, improving the work we do. So mm -hmm. Airbell works on really identifying, you know, breakthrough solutions that require a different way of looking at the world and, you know, what the sector is now calling innovation or R&D. We also have technical teams that work closely with Airbell. And so we have teams in health and education and violence prevention, et cetera who are charged with supporting and improving our overall program quality. And so I can give you examples in both cases. You know, I think cash is something that was a breakthrough solution for the aid community. IRC did a seminal impact evaluation of our winterization program in Lebanon that became a reference point for IRC and other players to say we can deliver cash in humanitarian contexts. Mm -hmm. IRC implemented, designed and implemented parenting programs that we then found were effective at decreasing maltreatment of kids in the home. And now we do parenting programs when we see that child neglect and abuse is a situation that we can respond to. It just so happened at the time that we were doing and replicating our parenting programs, and I think this is right, but you'll get the gist again, that UNICEF was writing a new kind of manual on the same type of programs. And so our parenting intervention made it into their manual. That's awesome, right? That helps us document a proven model to achieve an outcome, right? To decrease child abuse or increase safety for children in the home. And then to get it into UNICEF and then it be a reference guide for other organizations is a great example of something being scaled. Um, so it really depends and it requires a whole host of different things coming together. You know, the technical leadership to recognize that we have an area that we need to improve, 
the competencies to do quality, actionable research, whether we do it through kind of quick prototyping like we do in Arabelle or more longer term investment of evidence that we do over time. The example I gave you both on parenting and education. And then it requires opportunity and communication and advocacy to make sure that we're in the right forums, talking to the right donors and communicating in a way that people can understand what it is we did and what it is we learned. Jody, you are an extremely busy woman, and I know you've already given generously your time. I just have two more questions for you that I ask every guest in this particular series on the podcast. And the first one is, who do you pay attention to in order to stay fresh, in order to stay up on your practice, in order to find new things, in, in order to you know be the expert that you are? Obviously, the easiest answer is always, you know, I, I listen to the communities that we work in, I listen to our staff, but are there particular personalities Twitter feeds, blog posts, books, anything that might give others insight or help them to stay fresh? Yeah, that's a great question. So fresh is, I'm going to leave that for a second because (laughs) I I do want to call out a few, like I think important trends maybe that we're paying attention to. So the first is the World Bank. You know, I think a big watershed moment for the humanitarian sector and for those of us really, again, looking to get the right aid to the right people, more resources to really get to scale and meet the needs that we see in the countries in which we work. There's a huge opportunity currently on the world stage because the World Bank and Jim Kim in particular has really taken on board the need to make sure that development money goes to fragile refugee hosting contexts. And so we are watching that. We are partnering with the bank. We're offering our own technical advice where it might be helpful and really watching that to make sure that we can do the most we can to make sure that that opportunity is not missed. I think other organizations that I watch and follow, I follow Pradam. I think Pradam has been an incredibly effective organization in charting a course for being evidence-based and scaling models in India. I think BRAC is also interesting and important in that area. These are organizations that early on partnered with the Poverty Action Lab at MIT and really took on board, as IRC did 10 or 15 years ago, this idea that it's not enough to use conventional wisdom and anecdote, and we really do need to be more rigorous in how we design and evaluate our programs. I also, I think in terms of people, there's a great blog out this morning or yesterday by Rachel Glenister, who is also at MIT, but is now going to be the chief economist at DFID. And actually, you should definitely read it and your readers should read it. It's on innovation and evidence in development. It's a great read this morning and talks to a lot of the questions that actually you've been raising, but in a development context. Also, dear friend and former colleague, Alex Zwane, who's the CEO of the Global Innovation Fund and a real thinker in terms of breaking out of business as usual. I mean, my hope is that all of these players also start focusing on the context in which IRC works, where you know, people's needs are astronomical and we're not as focused 
as we are in countries that are poor. So I do look forward to that. And we as IRC try to make that point as much as we can. But those are some of the names and organizations that I am most interested in. Thank you so much. Last question I have for you. You personally, you know, you've talked a lot about IRC and what's happening. You've given us a host of examples of not only innovative practices, but, you know, how you're seeing IRC's operations evolve and, you know, going into the future. Is there any one particular thing that you, you know, just sort of you as your personality that you see as a really cool practice or a shiny new object, a technology, a process, anything that's sitting out there in the world today, maybe it's, you know, been invented by someone that you'd like to give a shout out to that you think other people should know about that hasn't quite hit the world stage yet? No. <laughs> I think if I had, had more time to think about it, would, you know, I'm not a shiny new object person. You know, I don't think we're doing enough just with the nuts and bolts. And I worry about shiny new objects. You know, I think the people that need humanitarian aid need us to be doing our best at planning for outcomes instead of activities, not doing short term investments that make no sense, that aren't logical, that require incredibly high transaction costs for implementing agencies to deliver, using anecdote and repeating unproven models across context and time, you know, not coordinating in a country, having their own pet projects instead of really assessing the needs of people, not supporting government capacity in things like health and education, and instead delivering technology, you know, I really think that one way we can define innovation in our space is really doing what needs to be done because it's not getting done. So I don't have a, I think things like technology need to make easier the work that's being done and that the real work is hard, nuts and bolts, commitment, long-term investment, you know, really pushing against the political wins that exist you know, not only in the West and prevent us from getting the best available aid to people, but also in the countries in which we operate, where people are subject to pressures and oppression that is really keeping them from living the life we hope they can get. Jody, you know, I'm going to leave the 10 seconds of space before you said no there, just because it's fantastic. I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your candor and your fantastic answers to the questions. Good. Thanks so much, Stephen. Have a great day. Hey, guys, just a reminder that if you find value in these conversations like the one with Jody, take a minute and give us a rating on iTunes or hit me up on Twitter or Facebook, or you can always just send me an email at stephen at aidpreneur.com. Thanks. You've been listening to the Terms of Reference podcast from aidpreneur.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. (laughs) 